0: Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist,
1: Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Hey, Steve, did you know we had a city in Ohio called Wyoming?
0: No, but I did know that the United States has a state named
1: Wyoming. (laughs) A state? (laughs) Well, down in Hamilton County, there's an affluent bedroom suburb of Cincinnati called Wyoming. It's about a dozen miles from downtown. Uh, Do you want to venture a guess as to what it's named for?
0: I have no idea. The state itself?
1: Actually, it's named for Wyoming, Pennsylvania. Apparently, Pennsylvania also has a Wyoming. Oh. So I'm thinking maybe the folks who settled Wyoming, Ohio, came from Wyoming, Pennsylvania. Anyway, Wyoming is home to just under 9,000 people. I couldn't find any real claim to fame there, but I did see this. In the 2004-2005 school year, Wyoming, Ohio was number one on the state's educational report card. Our story tonight, of course, has nothing to do with any of that. As a matter of fact, this story is the kind of incident that had the good folks of this community shaking their head and saying, this kind of thing does not happen here. Years later, reporters would continue to mark it as one of the most brutal crimes in the city's history. So let's go to the summer of 1983, September 12th to be exact. 49-year-old Dorothea Irwin, they called her Dottie, was preparing to sell her expansive home on Compton Road. Dottie was the mother of three grown children. She had been divorced for about a decade, and her ex-husband, John, as well as two of her adult children, lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Her third child, a son, John, lived in Naples, Florida, with Dottie's mother, Mildred. Dottie was a successful businesswoman. She was a millionairess with quite a talent for buying and selling property, residential, commercial, industrial, you name it. She split her time between Ohio and a home she owned in Florida near her mother in Naples. She'd been there the last month or so, helping to look after her ailing mom, and while there, her son John spent a great deal of time urging her to get rid of the Ohio property and move to Florida full-time. That way, he could help her invest the money from that property. She finally agreed. That's why she was in Ohio. She'd come home to sell her home the house was just getting ready to go on the market. She hadn't even distributed literature about it yet. When Dottie got a call from a man who said he'd noticed the for sale sign on the house, saw the swimming pool in the backyard, and already knew he wanted it. Dottie didn't think to ask him how he saw the swimming pool, since it wasn't visible from the street. Nor did she question him saying he saw a for sale sign in the yard, because there wasn't one but she arranged to meet him that Monday evening. Around 7 p.m. before the man arrived, Dottie phoned a friend to tell him she had a buyer. She was thrilled. I can't talk more, she told her friend. I'll call you later. Two hours after that call, around 9.30 p.m., a man named Fred Baker let himself into Dottie's home. It was his home, too, at the moment. He had been boarding there and caring for the property while Dottie was in Florida. He was surprised to find the house lit up. Just about every light was on. And a few steps into the house, those lights illuminated a gruesome scene. Dottie was in the first floor hallway of the house, a bloody bundle on the floor. She had been stabbed and slashed repeatedly in the head, chest, and back, with a small, sharp blade. The Hamilton County coroner ruled that some of those wounds collapsed her lungs. She had also broken one of her arms, trying to defend herself. But she survived long enough to leave police a clue. She scrawled down something on an envelope that was found next to her body, something investigators have never revealed to this day, but say is a key to her killer. The small Wyoming Police Department and its 13 officers set about searching the area, looking for clues and hoping the killer had maybe discarded the murder weapon. After an intense hunt through a wooded area nearby and the backyard swimming pool, they came up empty-handed. Wyoming police were joined in their efforts to catch a killer by the Cincinnati force, where there were detectives far more experienced and trained in murder investigation. They also received some help from family members. Two of Dottie's children, Jan and Joy, both traveled from their homes in Atlanta to Ohio to meet with police and provide information during searches of Dottie's home, safe deposit boxes, and other properties. There was no end to the list of possible suspects. Dottie had extensive business contacts and dealings. Could one of them have led to this? Police traveled around the country chasing down leads. They conducted extensive interviews and did polygraphs, which they said indeed helped weed out some people of interest. One polygraph was given to a former tenant of Dottie's, a man she had forcibly evicted the year before for not paying his rent. He passed. They also gave the current boarder, Fred Baker, the man who found her, a lie detector test and impounded his car for a time. But he was cleared. There was also a man in Dottie's life that newspaper referred to as a close companion. He was 73-year-old Ray Lottis, the finance director of the nearby city of Montgomery. Ralph told police he met Dottie seven years earlier during a trip to Mexico, and they became the best of friends. He's the one she called with the news about having a buyer two hours before her body was found. A reporter asked Ralph if he suspected anyone in Dottie's death, and he said cryptically, in my opinion, there is a little pattern developing, but it's a police matter. Ralph vowed to spend the rest of his life helping to track down Dottie's killer, and when he died in 1992, his obituary said he kept his word and never stopped looking. From an evidence perspective, the trail in Dottie's case grew cold, but that didn't mean police weren't forming some theories. They were beginning to think that Dottie's murder was a contract killing, and they explored the idea that the person who hired the killer might have been her own son, 32-year-old John James Irwin. Irwin's behavior after Dotty's death certainly didn't help him. He refused to return to Ohio to speak with police or take a polygraph. He even skipped his mother's funeral. That didn't stop him from getting his share of the will. Dotty's estate was worth over a million dollars, which was evenly divided between her three children. But there was a whole lot more than that to make police look in Irwin's direction. In 1972, Irwin was convicted of embezzlement, including from his own father's company, and was serving a 7- to 20-year sentence at the state prison in Lebanon, Ohio. While there, he worked as a file clerk in one of the prison offices, where he was able to forge a day pass, which allowed him to enter the minimum security part of the prison. And on December 17, 1973, he used one of those forged passes to calmly and coolly check himself out of the Lebanon prison. Over the next two years, he traveled the world, Costa Rica, Mexico, Canada, Africa, the Mediterranean, Sweden, impersonating a lawyer and concocting fraud schemes all along the way. But every once in a while, he would call back to Ohio to talk to Lebanon prison warden William Dahlman. He'd call collect and Warden Dahlman would accept out of curiosity for where Irwin was now. I can only imagine Irwin must have wanted to come back home because in October of 1975, the warden convinced him to surrender to authorities in Mexico. When he was taken into custody, He carried passports from four different countries. In 1976, he was transferred to a federal prison in Texas, and three years later, he'd served his time and was released for good behavior. That's when he went to Naples, Florida, and moved in with his wealthy grandma, Mildred Hilberg. That was his mom's mom. Erwin began several business adventures, including two cab companies and a chemical company, and he later persuaded his grandma to invest in them. Then, promising he could make her more money on her own savings, he convinced her to make him co-signer on all of her bank accounts, which gave him access to over half a million dollars in cash. He also took a loan from his mom, But when he failed to repay it, she was having none of it. In 1979, she filed a civil suit against her son to get that money back. That led to an investigation that turned up some $77,000 worth of bad checks that Irwin had written to support his failing enterprises. Those were felony charges. And so Irwin went to jail again, but only for another year. In 1983, that was the year Dottie was killed, had already been out of prison by then and was living with grandma again. And he was up to his old tricks. He'd started taking money from her accounts. Mildred knew it and Dottie knew it. There was a huge strain on the relationship between the three of them. And Dottie let family and friends know she did not trust her son. And yet... When he started arguing that she needed to sell her home in Wyoming so that he could invest the money from it for her, she gave in. That was the trip, which led to the trip when she was killed. After Dottie's death, Irwin's grand schemes escalated. Follow me here. Using his charisma and charm, he convinced the bank officers to loan him half a million dollars solely on his signature. They agreed to this because it called for the loan to be redeposited into a CD with a bank with a hold on it so it couldn't be taken out. And the bank felt they were protected. The money, after all, would not actually be leaving the bank. But Irwin didn't want the bank's money because his next step was to get a credit card company to extend him a credit line of up to half a million dollars, something the credit card company was willing to do after they called the bank and verified that he indeed had that much money there. In April of 1984, Irwin then used those credit cards to purchase several expensive gold coins. The store was stunned at first, But happy to sell them after calling the credit card company and verifying that he had that much credit and also smartly getting an authorization code from the credit card company so they wouldn't be liable. In the end, it was the credit card company that was left holding the empty bag. Irwin disappeared from Naples with his loot, but not before first withdrawing another quarter million dollars from his grandma's bank accounts. After all that family had been through, his grandma had still left his name on as a co-signer. Poor Mildred was a broken woman, and she died of a heart attack a month later. It had been less than a year after her daughter had been murdered. After leaving Naples, Irwin continued orchestrating various fraud and embezzlement schemes throughout the country. Investigators estimated that between 1984 and 1986, he stole over $1.5 million. Now, Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on this case back in 1991. And at that time, they noted John Irwin had not only been charged with a dozen felonies in his adult life, That escape from the Lebanon prison was only one of four times he'd slipped his jailers and escaped. Police considered him to be one of the most cunning and dangerous criminals they had ever encountered. The first time Unsolved Mysteries aired their story, a viewer presented authorities with a video of John J. Irwin clowning around for the camera when he had come to his home for Thanksgiving dinner. Detectives were then able to account for Irwin's whereabouts from 86 to 91, but they still couldn't find him to arrest him. Later, Unsolved Mysteries did an update on the case, and this led to a hotel in Dallas, Texas, where FBI agents were able to take him into custody. He went to trial for 25 felony counts in seven states, was found guilty, and went to prison. But according to the Unsolved Mysteries website, he served his time and was released again. I can't find anything about what has happened to him since then. He'd be approaching about 70 years old today. Despite this very troubling history, police were never able to link Irwin to the murder of his mother. That case is still unsolved and open. But I've got a couple of little interesting side notes on this case. I found a forum where someone identified themselves as being the daughter of Dottie's best friend. Now, I can't confirm what she says here, but I'm going to share it anyway. She said when she was 13, that's when Dottie was killed, and that night her mom had sent her to Dottie's down the block to return a Tupperware container from a potluck dinner they had a couple of nights earlier. She said it was about 7.30 p.m. when she knocked on Dottie's door, but nobody answered, so she left the container on the doorstep. Now, she wonders if Dottie was being killed when her knocks were going unanswered. She said the next day on the way to school, she and her mom drove by the house. Now, it was blocked off with crime scene tape and the Tupperware container was still sitting on the stoop. They had no idea what was going on. They pulled into a parking lot where her mom was able to ask a police officer if Dottie was okay. And when he replied that Dottie was dead, she remembered her mother letting out a blood-curdling scream and crumpling to the floor. This forum poster also recalled the first time she met John James Irwin. It was a few months earlier when she was still 12. She was at Dottie's house doing some cleaning when he walked in and introduced himself. He was disheveled, kept telling her she was pretty, and backed her up against a wall until Dottie came into the room and yelled at him. She said Dottie and her son retreated to another room where they continued screaming. Dottie was accusing him of forging her signature on checks, and he was calling her a greedy bitch. The girl slipped out of the house and went home. The next day, Dottie came to her house to talk to her mom. If you recall, her mom was her best friend. And she recalled Dottie saying, He's stolen everything from me except my life, and I wouldn't put it past him if he took that too. Dottie was dead three months later. And then one final little side note is, just, it's interesting how simple searches of databases can turn up things in modern times that someone might never have really had access to in the days before computers were ubiquitous. For me, I remember researching my great-grandfather's name in the Akron Beacon Journal, just doing some genealogy, and I found out that a month after he died, this was back in the 50s, his name was chosen at random to qualify for a free subscription. Back then, they, the Beacon would hide your name in the classified ads, and if you found it and it was your name, you would get the newspaper for a year well, Grandpa wasn't alive to take advantage of it, and I doubt his family ever knew that that had even been in there. Now, Dottie Irwin was killed on September 12th of 83. Ten days later, the Cincinnati Enquirer published a column called Question Time in which readers could submit questions for other readers to answer in that column, a Dorothea Irwin was asking for help locating a couple of recipes, a cheesecake and some macaroon cookies she would tasted at a Wyoming church the Christmas before and couldn't get off her mind. Dottie was buried by then, but I can't help but wonder if some helpful but unwitting reader sent in those recipes for her.
0: That's it for a midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size ohio mystery episode in the meantime enjoy the rest of your week and may all of your mysteries have happy endings